So, I want to start by giving a, I guess you could call it a metric in order to decide how to, to know what is really a crop worth growing. And this is actually from Curtis Stone's book, The Urban Farmer. He uses something that is called the crop value rating. This is something he came up with, and I think it's a, it's a really good way to, to look at crops and decide, is this really worth my time growing? Now, <clears throat> I just want to say a few caveats before we get into this too much. Curtis Stone, if you remember, is the one growing on a quarter of an acre. And so that is so intensive that he can't grow a lot of crops. So he is super focused on the most profitable crops. You know, even if it's a crop that everybody wants and likes, he doesn't have room to grow it. So that's why he's able to zero in on on the most profitable crops but he has five criteria that he uses to to uh, judge a crop by <clears throat> if you can tell us how to do it we would love that that's right um, and we'll just go ahead in the meantime here's let's see do, do we need to... I try first. I think it was working before when I cut mine. Okay. So we just double tick. So... <coughs> so the first of the five criteria is short days to maturity. He's looking for things with less than 60 days or 60 days or less to maturity. Um, and that's, that's something that I had kind of figured out on my own in, you know, like with potatoes. I, again, I don't know how it is here, so I, I, I just assume it's not too much different. But with potatoes in, in the States, they're divided into three general categories. You have short day to maturity, intermediate, and long days to maturity. And the long days can be 120 days or more to maturity. And the short day varieties can be um, 60 days or a little more. So the question is, why would you grow a 120-day variety? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. I think this cable is a bit sensitive, so better uh, not touch it. <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, my, my son-in-law is a computer whiz, and he's always been around to help us at our conferences over there. So... It's a blessing to have people who know what they're doing here. Okay, well this will make it easier for everybody. So I'll try not to move this. 
Okay, so yeah, if you can grow a potato in 60 days, why grow it in 120 days? Same with tomatoes, you know, just look for variety. Now, granted, sometimes the ones that that uh, have a longer days to maturity may be more flavorful, or there may be some reason why people like to grow them. But um, what I found, you know, the longer they're in the garden, the greater the chances you're going to get some kind of disease or the pests are going to find them. So, you know, you want to get them in and out as quick as possible. So that's his first criteria. Second one is high yield per linear foot. How much can this crop yield um, per linear foot? And he gives an example in his book of, well, the best example and the easiest example to look at for a high value crop is lettuce. Lettuce, you can grow a nice head of lettuce in a square foot. How much does that do? Does a head of lettuce sell for here? Three dollars. Yeah, anywhere between two and four, five. Well, that's actually pretty. You know, we sell them a nice big head for three dollars. Um, that's three dollars per square foot, and I'm kind of getting in ahead of myself here, but it's only in the garden for a month because we start it in transplants it's you know they're approximately 60 days to maturity so the first month is in the greenhouse all you know compact we've got a lot of plants in there together so it's in the garden for one month and we earn three dollars per square foot and theoretically now it depends on climate you know, we, we're still struggling to grow lettuce in the summertime in our climate. Um, it just, you know, it's too hot. It bolts and it gets bitter. Um, but we can grow it spring, fall, and winter with protection. So over the spring, fall, and winter, theoretically, you could grow four crops in one square foot at least depending on how intensively you were doing it so that's twelve dollars a square foot and you know you've got forty three thousand square feet to the acre um, obviously you've got to take out for pathways and stuff but you see the idea that lettuce can be an extremely profitable crop. So you're looking at how much per linear foot. And, and again, this is his, his criteria are based on that 30 inch wide bed. So a linear foot is really two and a half feet, right? And so he's looking for things that will produce at least half a pound in that two and a half square feet. Can I ask a question? Yes. What sort of lettuce are you coming from? The iceberg lettuce or are you 
We do not grow iceberg lettuce. The question is on what varieties of lettuce. You know, iceberg lettuce in the States, that's grown in California, and it's, it's rather nutritionally bankrupt and very bland. Um, so most, in fact, I don't know of any market gardeners that grow iceberg lettuce. They grow, you know, we grow, again, I don't know what terms you use here, but bib or butterhead lettuce. Oh, that's the best. It's just, it melts in your mouth. We grow romaine. We grow um, just kind of like a loose leaf lettuce. You know, the, the beauty of lettuce is that there are so many colors and varieties that it's, I mean, it's the most beautiful crop to grow, and it's one of the easier crops to grow, at least for us, and it's one of the most profitable crops to grow, so it's really, lettuce is where it's at in my, um, in my mind. Okay, number three, high price per pound. Um, you know, how much, how much can you make on it? A minimum, he says, of $4 a pound. Now, salad mix, we sell for 8 to $10 a pound. So, and, and of course, you make more if you sell it in small. Most people don't want a pound of, of salad mix. That's a lot of salad. Um, so you sell it by the quarter pound, and you sell it for $4 a quarter pound. And so then it's really $12 a pound. No, six, $16 a pound. Um, let's see, I, honestly, um, I don't do any of the marketing. I just focus on the growing, so. I'm not even positive what we're charging right now for. So you have a quarter pound price and then a half pound price and then a pound price. Uh, okay, long harvest period, minimum of four months. Now this one is a little tricky because there's two ways to look at it. One would be something like tomatoes that could one plant could be harvested over four months if it's taken care of properly. But the other way to look at it is like radishes. Radishes is the quickest crop in and out of the garden, 21 days. So you can successively plant it for at least four months out of the year, um, depending on where you live, your climate. Some people can grow it year round. Um, we don't, again, we don't try to grow radishes in the, in the hottest time of the year because they, the flavor gets very sharp. And then the last criteria is popularity. Obviously, you can grow wonderful stuff, but if, if nobody wants it, you're not going to do very well. So high demand and or low market saturation. You know, again, this, this classic example of this is tomatoes for us. 
you know, in the summertime, there's piles of tomatoes at market. And, and then a lot of people grow tomatoes at home, maybe just a plant or two in their backyard. But trying to sell tomatoes in July is a challenge because everybody has them. The market is saturated. But if you have tomatoes in May when nobody else has them, you can charge we charge four dollars a pound and have no problem selling them. Okay, so you all have this in your mind. So Curtis Stone, when he looks at, you know, is trying to decide what he should grow, he, he uses these five criteria, and I'm suggesting they're good for you to think about. Number one, short days to maturity. Two, high yield per linear foot. Three, high price per pound. Four, long harvest period. And five is popularity. So what we're going to do here is go through a list of crops with a high CVR, or crop value rating. Now we call this arugula, you call it rocket. Rocket is a five over five, five out of five, because it's very fast. Some varieties mature in 21 days. They can have multiple cuttings and you can grow it in our climate. Um, again, three, three seasons out of the year, at least. Some people grow it through the summer. Um, it's, it's quite popular, it's growing in popularity. You all like Rocket? It's, uh, it's one of those things either you love it or hate it. If you don't love it, I say you need to learn to love it because it's super nutritious. It's really, really good for you. So, you start by just adding a little to your salads, but then once you become addicted to it, you can have it as the base of your salad. Okay, so that's one that meets all the criteria, at least for Curtis Stone. Now, you know, I'll say here and, and emphasize it throughout the thing, obviously different parts of the country and different countries there may be some variability with this, although I, I think that there's probably more similarity than variability. So if there are any of these things I mention, you say, oh, Aussies don't like that at all, let me know, because that would be interesting to know. This is another one I changed for my presentation here. We just call them beets. You call them beetroots. Um, this is a CBR of 4 out of 5. Which do you think it doesn't meet? Short period of growing. Okay, well again, it might vary per climate, but most beets take a little longer than 60 days to maturity. So that's, it's on the edge there, but we were surprised by this many years ago. Our, our two biggest root crops 
for profitability are carrots and beets. Um, you know, I, I never liked beets growing up. I'm still trying to learn. To, I eat them now. They're not, I don't ever choose them, but I will eat them because I know they're good for me. Um, but a lot of people don't like beets, but clearly there's plenty of people that do because, you know, I mean, we sell them a dollar a beet. I'm embarrassed, to, but that's what the market sells them for. You get a good size beet like that, a dollar a beet. They're really gaining popularity. Are they? Okay, that's interesting. I kind of thought that was a old British thing that they've been popular here forever. In the gourmet market, yeah. Well, you know, the the market gardening movement is influencing the gourmet market and vice versa. It's a very uh, symbiotic relationship. Um, carrots, CVR of four out of five. Again, carrots take at least 60 days, some of them longer. I mean, most of them longer, actually. But um, that's pretty good, four out of five. Kale, now we're talking about big kale. Um, you know, the beauty of kale, and again, it's somewhat climate dependent, but it can go for months, you know. Rod Bailey has plants, you know, this tall, and I've seen them, you know, up this tall. They still have a hedge of kale. Yeah, you just, they, they go and go. And kale has become very popular in the last 10 years in America. Um, I don't know, is it popular here? Pardon? Okay, particular varieties. I, I hesitate to to start doing that because, um, you know, I have no idea what you can get here. But our favorite variety, and and I'll tell you, we love to grow carrots in the winter time. We plant them in the fall and they mature as the days are getting shorter and cooler. And then we leave them in the ground all winter long. And we dig them as we need them. And this is something we learned from Elliot Coleman, calls them candy carrots. And I tell you, they are the sweetest carrots you've ever tasted. And we use a variety called Bolero, Bolero. It's a hybrid carrot. And, um, boy, that's something we should talk about at some point. I, I don't even have it in here talk, talking about hybrid versus open pollinated and all of that. Do you all understand all that? You know, some people think hybrids are evil. I don't personally believe that. Now, I, there are disadvantages of hybrids in that you can't save the seed, but there are also very good advantages of hybrids in that they are more reliable, and when you're a market gardener, you need reliability. So we're not opposed to hybrids, although if we have a choice, um, 
and they have similar quality, we'll definitely choose the open pollinated variety, but we don't shy away from hybrids. So Bolero is a hybrid, but oh, I wish, I wish we could have brought you some of our carrots, because right now is the height of carrot season. Uh, my son, we have, uh, well, we plant and seed about 200,000 carrots. Um, and they sell well. Do you save them directly into the soil? Yes, carrots, in fact, we're, we're gonna talk about that more here. So lettuce is a five over five. It's, it's hard to go wrong with lettuce. Microgreens, everybody know what microgreens are? I don't know how popular that is here. That's a gourmet thing, and I keep thinking it's, it's a trend that's going to fade away, but it doesn't seem to be happening. It's still going strong. We don't grow microgreens, but I keep thinking we need to start growing. Curtis Stone, a lot, of, well, I think pretty much all these guys that are making super high dollars are growing microgreens because the beauty is you just grow them in a tray, a flat whatever you call them here. You just put a little soil and put the seeds on. And they're, they're um, usually harvested at the first true leaves. You know, you have the, the cotyledons, you call them that, the, the first leaves that come up, and then you have the true leaves. And that they're harvested there, so many of them take two weeks or less to grow. So super fast turnaround. The most popular ones are pea shoots and sunflower shoots that are grown as microgreens. Super fast, cut them. You know, the, the restaurants use them a lot as a garnish on a salad. Um, again, you'd have to do some research on the market, but a lot of people making a lot of money on microgreens. So yes. is this what we would call sprouts? Well, we differentiate. Sprouts are just usually the cotyledons, you know. Sprouts are smaller than microgreens. There's actually sprouts, microgreens, and then shoots. Some things like corn. Corn is often grown as shoots, um, you know, a little bigger and it's harvested and um, of course wheatgrass is another thing but that's kind of in a different category. Um, anyway, we're not going to talk a lot about microgreens but it's something that you may want to research. Um, you know, I, I did want to say I feel like you all, because I sense that Australia is a few years behind the U.S. in the whole small farm uh, market gardening movement. And I feel that really positions you at an advantage if you want to get into it because there's not as much competition. Um, you can be trendsetters. I'm telling you, you know, JM and Curtis are coming over here. People are paying a lot of money to go to their seminars it's going to happen. I mean, it is happening. And, you know, I'd love to see more Adventists getting in on the ground floor of that opportunity. 
So let's just keep going here. Radishes are a four out of five. I can't remember. I'd have to look why he says they're a four rather than a five. Baby kale. Um, you know, we, we grow the big kale, and usually the most popular kind is the curly kale, the green curly leaves. Uh, and there's another variety we call Lacinato or Toscano or dinosaur kale. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're dark leaves, kind of strapped leaves. Those are the two most popular kinds we grow. But then we grow um, red Russian kale. Are you familiar with that? That's grown, that's the main baby kale that's grown. And you know, by baby, we're talking about this big, big enough that you can get it in your mouth in one mouthful. You grow it intensively and um, harvest it with something like this, the, the greens harvester. And um, you can get multiple, it will regrow if you cut it at the right height. So usually you don't sell baby kale plain, you mix it with other greens and uh, make a nice salad mix with it. Okay, and the next one, salad mix. So you'll notice it's these, you know, the, the raquette, the, the baby kale, the salad mix, lettuce. These are all the five over fives. Um, the salad mix would probably largely be lettuce, but you might put some, some rocket in there. You say rocket or roquette? Okay. See, it's actually a French name. Roquet? I don't know French, but what's that? Like Tarjay. Like Tarjay? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but so, so a salad mix might include rocket, kale, lettuce, and then there's, there's dozens of Asian greens that most people have never heard of, but tatsoi, mizuna. Bok choy, um, bok choy. Yeah, well, that's a, bok choy is one that's not usually grown as baby for salad mix. I, I mean, I guess maybe it could be. But there's, I, you know, I, I have a Johnny's catalog here, and I would encourage you to look at it just to see the tremendous amount of, of, of greens, Asian greens, the mustards. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of mustards, and depending on your market, a lot of people don't like a really spicy mix but you can put a little in, and some of them are really frilly and colorful. You know, you want a mix that has color, has a variety of flavors, it has loft, so you like those frilly kind because it keeps it from sticking together. Um, turnips, well, we're gonna talk about these more. So spinach is big. Everybody likes spinach here? Wow, that's one of our main crops in the winter. Spinach, lettuce, and carrots are the three big ones in the winter for us. Uh, does really well. And tomatoes, 
uh, notice that's a 3 over 5. Um, again, I'd have to look at, at exactly how he rates that or why he rates it that way. But um, I don't think it's worth time for that now. So, so now what we're going to do is go through some of these and give just a few, and this is just brushing the surface, but a few tips or ideas on how to grow them. Um, so baby greens is, is the big one. So there are some keys to that. You want to really have a very smooth bed and a weed-free bed. Because um, you can imagine whether you're using something like this or whether you're just using a knife or scissors, um, if there's a lot of variation in the bed or if there's rocks or sticks, it, it really slows you down and, and you don't want anything in your mix. You know, you don't want dirt and stuff in your mix. Obviously, you'll, you know, you... you I say obviously, but a lot of some people don't wash their mix, especially if it's grown in a hoop house and you don't have dirt splashing on it. The less you handle it, the better. So, if it's if you do a really good job growing it, you may not need to wash it at all. But anyway, you you need a nice smooth bed. But the the biggest key is a weed-free seed bed. If you have because you're growing it very intensively, this is one kind of cedar you can use. Three passes of this on a 30-inch bed will give you 12 rows per bed. And that's how most, most um, baby greens are grown, 12 rows to the bed. There are variations on that, but uh, it's too too intensive to weed or to cultivate. The only way you can get weeds out is by hand. And I'll just give you a general rule. Anytime you have to get down on your hands and knees, you've just lost the profit from that crop. If you can't grow it standing up, then it's probably not going to make you money. So you really want to keep off your hands and knees. Now, I would say the one exception to that may be carrots because carrots are profitable enough and they're slow growing enough that you often have to go through and do a little bit of hand weeding. But um, you want to avoid that hand weeding at all costs if possible. And when we get to the weeding one, which is tomorrow, I'll give you 12 different uh, tips for, for keeping your beds weed-free. By the way, don't be afraid to stand up and move around a little bit if you need to. I know, especially after lunch, <laughs> the brain can be sluggish and you might need to get some oxygen to it. Okay, so seed with a high-density cedar. And now I say usually 7 to 12 rows per bed. There's another cedar I don't have here. I wish I could have brought all my tools with me. But Rod Bailey has been gracious to 
bring his tools. Um, so I, I won't get into that more now, but because we'll talk about that more with tools. But Curtis Stone uses a Jang cedar. It, it's a single row cedar, but it's, it's fast and it doesn't require quite as much seed bed preparation. And he will do um, like seven rows for a lot of these baby crops per bed. Uh, but anyone using this, or there's another one, a six-row cedar, this is the four-row cedar, they're going to be doing it 12 rows per bed. Need good moisture for germination, but then make sure not to overwater. This is that balancing act that farmers have to find, you know, when, when the seed is just been planted, you need to keep that bed moist. You've got, you want really even germination. There's nothing more, or I, I always catch myself when I say there's nothing, but there, it, it's very disappointing to have a, a sparsely seeded bed when you're wanting it really full and, uh, tight. So you want to make sure you've got good germination, but as soon as that stuff germinates and starts coming up, you have to really be careful with the watering because it's packed in so tight that there's not so much airflow and you can easily start getting some molds and rots if you overwater. So watering is really important. Harvest with the quick cut harvester. This is not a promotion of my son's thing, but as I said this morning, um, you know, Curtis Stone, you can go on YouTube and, and watch his videos on how to use this thing. He, he, I've heard him say, I would never get into market gardening without this tool here. I mean, he, he couldn't do what he's doing without that tool because it's so, so much faster than harvesting by hand, which was the only other option before this tool came along. Um, what, what are the exact plants you can use for that? Any of your baby crops are what you use the quick cut harvester for. Um, baby lettuce, arugula, kale, tatsoi, Mizuna, anything that you're growing for baby salad mix. Okay, growing baby lettuce. I, I just need to make sure I'm staying on target here. When, oh, I brought the schedule. So when does this end? Well, it, yeah, these, these two kind of meld together here. So we're going to try to end by 2.55 so we can have a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of a break before the next one. So um, <laughs> we now use Salanova lettuce for all our quotes, baby lettuce. Does, has anyone ever heard of Salanova? Okay, so this is, this is new within the last few years. 
It's actually a lettuce bred to grow ahead, or I mean at least grow big, but yet it's all small leaves. It, rather than, than the leaves getting big, it just puts out more leaves. And so what you do is you grab the whole head like this, and with a slice of a sharp knife, you have, you know, you put it in your container and it's all baby leaves. And there are lots of advantages to it. Um, you know, number one being the fact that you don't have to deal with the whole weed situation because you're planting them far enough apart that you can cultivate with a hoe. Um, number two, because you can have, have them spend half their life inside, you know, in your greenhouse, you're, you're growing transplants, you can just, you know, keep the production going. Um, number three, they're, they're hardier than baby lettuce. If you've ever grown baby lettuce, it's very fragile. And this lettuce is not so fragile. It's actually very flavorful. It's, it's kind of taken over the baby lettuce business in market gardening. Um, unfortunately, it has a, what do they call it? A, well, I should just show you a picture of it. So, no. so these are the varieties of, of Salanova. You can see what the head looks like, and then you can see the individual leaves. There's eight different varieties. These are what is called, uh, well, I don't know, I don't want to take the time to look. They, you know, it's like a plant, plant patent that you're not supposed to reproduce the seeds, which is unfortunate. But um, they call it something different in the states, but yeah, I think it's the same same idea. Um, there are other companies though that are beginning to come up with varieties with the same growth habit. But anyway, it's it's really revolutionized growing baby lettuce for us. Um, Pelleted seed, if you're transplanting, now obviously if you're direct seeding, you use so many seeds that you would never want to pay for pelletized seed, but pelletized seed is, is, has a clay coating on it, and it's also usually primed, which means that it's, as I understand it, it means that it's partially germinated. So with the pelletized seed, number one, it's so much faster to seed. You know, you can just get a handful and just, you know, seed a tray really, really quickly. If you have any kind of vacuum seeder to seed it, it's much easier. Because lettuce seed, as you know, is kind of odd shaped. Um, so I, I only use pelletized seed now for, for lettuce.
because it's worth it's a little more expensive but your time is money quick and easy to harvest sturdier heavier more loft than baby lettuce so these are all reasons why we have gone to Salanova um, I realize I'm rushing through these uh, because we're running out of time I guess what we're gonna have to do is just if you have more questions on this we'll see if we have time in our wrap-up to, to go into a little more depth and, and again any of these books are going to give you a lot more information on how they do things um, so you have a choice with spinach you can either seed it intensively with something like this and usually it's only good for one cut because um, you end up cutting a lot of leaves in half or something you know when, when you're cutting like this the way spinach grows and so for for follow-up cuts unless your market you know if, if, if it's for cooking or your market is not really picky you can get away with multiple cuts but the first cuts gonna be the only one that has really pretty leaves so you can either do it that way or the way we do it in the winter time is we transplant it for seeds we use soil blocks do do any of you know about soil blocks rather than okay um, if you've read Elliot Coleman or any of these you learn about it actually very few market gardeners use soil blocks um, it's kind of the purest ones that do it and you know because anyone will agree it's the best it grows the healthiest transplants but it's not as efficient as using what we call plug trays anyway so we'll put four seeds in a block and plant three or four rows per bed and then we just harvest individual leaves which is very labor intensive but you can get pretty fast at it either pinching the leaves off or using a little knife get a whole handful in your hand put it in the thing but the advantage of that is the same plants will produce all winter long we can harvest them every couple of weeks and your overall yield is really high and from our running the numbers is still profitable even though it's very labor intensive spinach is a heavy feeder needs extra fertility especially if you're keeping it for a long period of time spinach does not like hot weather at all it will go downhill very quickly in hot weather we try to harvest the leaves without the stems um, it makes a nicer end product growing turnips and radishes so most people when they think of turnips think of big kind of ugly purple and white things or something that um, is not considered it's in many cultures it's considered uh, horse or cow cow feed um, but we're talking about a particular kind of white gourmet salad turnips that are so good 
we just encourage our customers to eat them raw. They're too good to cook. Um, the particular variety we prefer is called Hakurai. Here's a picture here. This is a small picture, but they're just little white balls that are super, the, the chefs love them, customers love them. If they're grown right, they're really beautiful. And they will change people's opinion about turnips. We seed them four or five rows per bed. Radishes usually five rows, turnips four rows. Turnips are profitable enough that you can transplant them as well. Radishes, we never transplant. Now, the one challenge with, with turnips and radishes, and again, I don't know all your insects, but I was surprised being at Rod Bailey's how similar the insects were to what we had. Do you have flea beetles? Do you know about flea beetles? These little black bugs that will eat holes in leaves. Um, there's a flea beetle, then there's also a cabbage root maggot that will really deform the, the turnip, um, whatever you want to call them, balls. And, and so we always cover them with row cover, floating row cover, or um, I know Rod had some insect netting I saw. I don't know where he got that. We can try to ask him something to keep those insects off. Otherwise, they, they can really um, do some damage on these plants. Now, with root crops, I think you understand that the, if you leave the leaves on the root crop, if you bunch them with the leaves on, you have to be very careful or those leaves are going to draw the moisture out of the root and you'll end up with something spongy and not good. So ideally, you just cut, you bunch the, the turnips or radishes and just cut the leaves above the rubber band so that you're not losing all that moisture through transpiration. So that's one way to do it, but if you're running a CSA or something where you're trying to fill a box of produce, it's kind of nice to have the leaves on because it does a better job of filling the box. And some people, well, of course, turnip greens. Do you eat turnip greens here? No? Oh, wow. You're missing out. Um, this Hawkeye turnip has hairless leaves. You know, a lot of turnip greens have kind of fuzzy leaves. But um, in the south, where I come from, that's a big thing, turnip greens. Just cook them up like you would other greens. Really good. I did we growing daikon radish for the first time. And my husband, I thought he planted um, a type of cabbage. And enjoying them? Yeah. Okay. So we discovered so. <laughs> Yeah, well, the reality is there are very few tops that you can't eat. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we've eaten, we've even eaten carrot tops once. <laughs> I mean, you can, oh, my wife says twice. No, what do you, no. you can find recipes for using carrot tops, but turnip greens, don't throw them away. They're, they can really be good. Okay, growing beetroot, we actually transplant all our beets. That's probably surprising to many people, but um, beets, at least in our climate, can be very finicky germinators. And, you know, I've, I've gone out there, it looks like you have a good stand, and a few days later you go out, and where did they all go? You know, there's just one here and there. They seem to be particularly susceptible to damping off. Do you know what I mean when I say damping off? When young plants just fall over and die, it's a rot that that gets them at the base of the plant, the soil. So we find we do better with transplanting them. We put two seeds, most of you probably know that, that um, beet seed often has more than one plant in it. Beets and Swiss chard both have, I can't remember the term right off the top of my head, but um, they have multiple seeds per seed. Um, so we put two seeds and try to shoot for four plants per block. And what they'll do as they grow, they just push each other aside and you get nice beets. And the advantage of doing that, obviously you're getting four plants per block, you know, you're paying for the potting mix, so you want to maximize that. Um, so, so it's cheaper, but it's also less transplanting and easier cultivation because you can cultivate between them rather than having one solid row of plants that you have to weed by hand. Okay, we've run out of time. We usually sell, if they're good size beets, three in a bunch for $2.99. Um, we like to sell them with the tops as much as possible. You do eat beet tops, don't you? Beet greens? Yeah, those are really good. Um, and then as the season goes along, they tend to get these spots on the leaves. You know what I'm talking about? I know you have them here because I saw them at Rod's. Um, and so at some point when the leaves are no longer marketable, we just start pulling them and cutting the tops off. And then you can store them, if you have a cooler, you can store them for weeks under the right conditions and just sell them as the roots. Okay, um, honey, can I take a few minutes of your time? So carrots, big, big crop for us. Um, and some of these growers, you know, most of these growers are up north in the U.S. and they can literally grow carrots 12 months of the year. We grow them for nine months of the year. We don't try to grow through the summer. We can, but the quality goes down enough. We really, really try not to sell 
inferior quality produce. We want to have a reputation for really high quality produce. But obviously, if you're going to have a nice carrot, you need to have really loose, deep soil. And that's where some of these tools like the broad fork come in to keep your soil loose, deep enough that you're going to get a nice carrot out of it. But the other big key with carrots is having a weed-free bed. Carrots are slow growers. They don't compete well with weeds. And I'll tell you, I can speak from experience that if you, get, if you let the weeds get ahead of you in your carrot bed, you're better off just tilling it in because you've just lost any money you were going to make. So there are some tricks that we'll talk about, but there's uh, this is where flame weeders really come into play, and a lot of people will buy a flame weeder just for carrots. Um, have you seen flame weeders? Basically, it's propane torches that um, you let the weeds get germinate and get up and then you just run that over and it just it just toasts them is it fun is it fun <laughs> it's it's bordering on fun and scary <laughs> it, it it brings up too many too many images of world war ii flamethrower kind of things you know um but no it is it is fun it's you feel a lot of power <laughs> it sounds like a jet engine you know i'll try to maybe with a little help we can um get some video because my son has just come out with a new new flame weeder that i had an experience when i was uh, just recently booked that little high ground plants Yeah, yeah, you have to be careful with flame weeders. You also don't like want to use them around the edges of your hoop house because um, it doesn't mix well with plastic. Um, again, I don't know how it is here with pelletized seed. You know, Elliot Coleman was kind of encouraging pelletized seed, but I started seeing that I felt like it didn't get the same germination with it. And there are other growers now who are saying the same thing. Stay away from pelletized carrot seed. Um, it doesn't seem to, to germinate as well. And, you know, how many rows per bed you do? We often do up to 12 rows per bed of carrots. As you know, we've found most of our customers don't like the really big carrots. You know, they tend to get a little bit tough and stuff. So ideally, we shoot for something about this long and, you know, maybe that big around. They're more tender. And, um, yeah, I just wish I could give you some of our winter carrots. And then I talk about taking advantage of cold weather to sweeten carrots. We talked about large pots for tomatoes. 
So what that means is we pot them up twice. We grow them in small blocks on a heat mat so they'll germinate well. And then we pot them up to a two inch block. And then we pot them up to a six inch pot. So like I say, our, our tomato plants are about this big, super stocky, healthy, and ready to go when we put them in the ground. Excuse me, what soil do you put in those pots? We, we use a, a potting mix. Now I realize that you are, I think most of the peat moss comes from Canada or the very northern United States. And so all our potting mixes are are peat based. Um, I don't know what's available here. I saw Rod had a potting mix, but I didn't get a chance to look at what it was made of. You might, you know, in this part of the world, you're closer to the Pacific Islands. They're doing a lot with coconut core, they call it. They grind it up and, and it's supposed to work well. The key with, with tomatoes is trying to figure out what your market wants. You know, the reality is in the US, most people want a red tomato, firm red tomato about this big, because that's what they get at the grocery store. That's what they know. Um, a lot of the heirlooms can be huge, you know, really big and often unusually shaped. People who know what they're, who know their stuff will buy those because they know heirloom tomatoes are usually more flavorful. They're certainly more colorful, but no point in growing them if you don't have a market for them. Sorry, do you keep them in the pots? You don't put them in the ground. Oh no, we put them in the ground. We don't grow anything in pots just because we don't like growing in pots. It's too much work in my mind. You, play, you have to play God to figure out what that plant needs. Yeah. Whereas when you put it in the ground, nature and God does its thing. Okay, consider growing undercover and using greenhouse varieties. There are certain varieties of tomatoes that have been bred for indoors and they're super productive, super... Um, they, they continue to, to bear even in hot weather, which is a challenge with tomatoes. When the temperature gets too warm, 90 degrees Fahrenheit, so what is that, uh, 30 centigrade, approximately, they start, they, they start, um, they don't pollinate and, and bear properly but some of these varieties will keep going. Um, and yeah, we just don't have time to get into this, but trellis to two liters and lower and lean. Does anybody know what I'm talking about there? Where you trellis up strings. If you come to Rod's place, you can see he's doing this. Um, but the point is with this, if you grow indeterminate varieties, you can have a plant that's 30 feet long by the end of the season. It's just laying on the ground except the last six or eight feet, which are standing up and you, you keep picking off of that. So it's a very, it's all 
talked about in that greenhouse grower's handbook. Okay, wow. Um, now let me just... Uh, I just want to end by saying you can't always focus on the highest value crops. We've kind of looked at that, but you've got to look at what what people want in your area. These are some other ones that can work well. Cucumbers, capsicums, or we call them sweet peppers, garlic, cherry tomatoes, that's a big one for us. Very profitable. <coughs> You get some of the really flavorful cherry tomato varieties. Herbs or herbs, basil, dill, cilantro. Do you grow cilantro here? It's coriander, yeah, before it goes to seed. It's the leaves. That's very popular in, in Mexican-style cooking. Small fruits. Are another thing to look at because because of their popularity they're not going to produce the same dollar value per acre but again it can draw people to your stand um, I yeah I wish and we we can try to find time to talk about some of these if you want where, where the potatoes and okay well here's crops not okay. to grow um, and again, I have a question mark there because we grow most of these. And part of it is just because we want them for ourselves. Part of it is we want our apprentices to learn how to grow them. And part is to provide variety for our CSA. But these are crops that are notoriously low dollars per square foot. Broccoli and cauliflower takes a long time to grow and you don't make a lot of money per square foot. Although Rod, I think, was trying to argue with me on that. Storage squash and melons, again, they may be popular, but they're not giving you a lot of money per square foot. If you have a lot of land and you have a way to tend them, go for it. Potatoes, um, you know, potatoes are one of those crops that can easily be harvested by machine. And um, the price of potatoes in the store, at least in the States, is low enough that it's hard to, you know, we're lucky if we get $2 a pound for potatoes. Because um, in the store, they're less than a dollar a pound not a lot of money there. Celery and celeriac just take forever to grow. I, I have been parsnip, same thing. They just, you know, 120 days or more to, to grow them. It, it's just not profitable. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.